let's start talking about the great divorce. Um, Everything that I've said so far, we will return to over and over again, because it really is a very simple story. Um, It will be podcasted. Um, I'm telling you that for two reasons. If you don't make it, you can listen to it on podcast. It also, I'm telling you that, you know, if you say from the back of the room that you hate your mother-in-law, it's going to be on podcast. <laughs> so, um, you know, I don't want you to not speak because it will be podcasted, but I don't assume you'll, you'll say anything real confidential in front of this size room, but it will be podcasted. Um, so if you miss a session and you're curious, and by the world, if you go and Google podcast C.S. Lewis, you'll be inundated with great, great, great podcast about all of the work of C.S. Lewis. My favorite one is, um, and this will help you know a little more about Mr. Lewis, my favorite one, they're all good, my favorite one is Pints with Jack. Pints, P-I-N-T-S, with Jack. Why is the podcast called Pints with Jack? He's English. He, he spent most of his time meeting with his friends in pubs. Now, he did drink a lot of tea, but he drank a lot of other stuff, too. Um, he was English. He was um, a scholar. He loved his beer. He loved um, his tea. Um, he loved his smoking, which is one of the reasons he died at age 64. Do you know what day he died? The day Kennedy was assassinated. That's why y'all didn't pay attention. Uh, He was born in 1898. He died on the same day uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated, uh, 1963. Um, He was was an avid walker to about the last decade of his life. But even with all of his walking through the beautiful countryside of England, uh, the drinking and the smoking got to him. But there were a lot of people in the 1950s and 60s that didn't realize smoking. He honestly thought smoking was beneficial to his lungs. He honestly thought, he and his brother, until he married late in life, which is another story. You can watch that story on Shadowlands. Um, he, he and his brother never married. He had, they had some women in their lives, but they never married. He actually thought that emptying his the ashes from his pipe into his carpets prolong their lives. You know, sometimes we think we know things that are not right. <laughs> but anyway, he only he died before he was sixty five years old. He died uh, when he was sixty four. But um, he did die the day Jack Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, that's why nobody paid any attention to his death. Um, anyway, so uh, pints with Jack. Uh, is one of my favorite podcasts. It, uh, the people who, who host that podcast I find very entertaining, and uh, you learn a lot about C.S. Lewis. So, there's some introduction to C.S. Lewis. There's some introduction to the thoughts of C.S. Lewis. Um, let's head a little stronger toward the great divorce. Um, the idea for the great divorce came to Jack. By the time Jack wrote anything... He had been thinking about it for years, if not decades. 
People have always been fascinated by how quickly he wrote some of his books, and it's a huge list of books. But he wrote his books quickly because he'd been cogitating, thinking about them, praying about them, sometimes literally decades. Uh, Great Divorce, uh, he wrote during World War II. He he finished it right at the end of World War II. It ended up being published in book form in 1946. Uh, But he'd been thinking about it for almost two decades. He started thinking about it in the early 30s, 1930s, when he ran across a really bizarre Christian piece of theology from the Middle Ages. Uh, The church never officially approved this as Christian doctrine, uh, but he ran across it in sermon by Jeremy Taylor, who quoted some medieval church fathers. It, it, It is, and you can Google this if you find it interesting, it is a medieval concept called the refrigerarium. And what the refrigerarium is, of course, that's the Latin word that comes from its use in Psalm 65 in the Latin Vulgate. What, what they thought the refrigerarium could be, what some people in the Christian faith in the high Middle Ages thought that was, was that maybe those who go to hell get a little vacation and they get to go see heaven, not really for a second chance, but to add to their torment. Yeah, I'm kind of glad we did not stick that in the Apostles' Creed. Um, but it is kind of a fascinating concept that you can have a vacation from hell and take a field trip or something. Uh, but anyway, he ran across that idea in the early 30s, and he kept thinking about it, and, and that's why he finally thought, well, wouldn't it be kind of interesting to play with that idea and create a fantasy? Um, you know, what would it look like if some people who were entering hell, in the outskirts of hell, uh, had an opportunity to go see what heaven might be like. What, what would they do? So there comes 20 years later, the, the, the great divorce. So I guess by this point, I hope you realize, divorce has nothing to do with marriage to a spouse, right? I was in a coffee shop in Wilmington, reading this book one day, I probably read it 25 times, reading this book one day, and the young man behind the, the, the barista selling me my coffee said, watching me carry a book called The Great Divorce, wonder what your, what does your wife think about that? <laughs> and I told him, it's not really a manual as to how to... <laughs> yeah, I said, give me, a, give me a little time, I can tell you what it's about. Anyway, so you, you do know what the divorce that's being spoken of has nothing to do with a legal marriage. So um, it comes from this idea of taking a, um, a trip from hell to heaven. So with that, look at the preface for a second. Um, look at the preface. Notice how he starts the preface. Blake wrote The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Now, you may remember Blake. He was a famous poet from the late 18th century. I think he may have lived maybe into the early 19th century. Like most poets, I never understood him what the man was saying in his poetry. But anyway, and evidently near to C.S. Lewis, Blake wrote The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. That was a poem that Blake wrote. 
And then anyway, he goes on to say, if I have written of their divorce, the divorce of heaven and hell, as opposed to the marriage of heaven and hell, our culture, by the way, and you'll see this in a second, has married heaven and hell. Contemporary culture, most of the people I'm speaking to in the pew on Sunday morning, maybe some of you have married heaven and hell and you just don't know it. So just hang with me a minute. Blake wrote a poem entitled The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, and he was all in favor of that, marrying heaven and hell. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, If I have written of their divorce, this is not because I think myself a fit antagonist for so great a genius as Blake, nor even because I feel at all sure that I know what he meant. Well, yeah, I can't understand Blake's poetry either. But in some sense or other, the attempt to make that marriage is perennial. Yeah, I I talk to people every Sunday morning that have married heaven and hell out there in the pew. Uh, The attempt is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either-or. I mean, one of the mottos of this age, and I'm sure you've heard a teenager say it, is whatever. Yeah, that sort of motto of this age. Whatever. It's all going to work out. Kumbaya. Hakuna Matata. Don't worry, be happy. Yeah, I really haven't recently told anybody that they may burn in hell for eternity. Maybe we should. Because, you know, we think it's always both and. He's saying there are some either or choices in life. Our choices matter. So the marriage of heaven and hell is kind of taking heaven and hell and kind of put them together. We're all going to end up in the same place. In this culture, everybody that dies seems to go to the white light. Don't get that one. Not sure about that one either. Everybody doesn't die and go to the white light. Uh, By the way, there have been accounts of people dying, and that's not what they seen. That's not what they saw. And then they come back. But in this culture, everybody dies and goes to the white light. Everybody, you know, I mean, that's, that's what Blake meant by the marriage of heaven and hell. And he was in favor of it and he supported it. Uh, most of the people sitting in our pews don't doctrinally believe in the marriage of heaven and hell. But they just have no concept that they or anyone they know will ever go to hell. Because, you know, whatever. You know, choices don't really matter. You know, there's not a choice between heaven and hell. Uh, so that's what the marriage of heaven and hell is all about. So when he's talking about the great divorce, he's saying they don't marry. You get one or the other. They don't marry. So that's what he means by the great divorce. And he goes on to say that. Let me back up to the sentence. The attempt is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either or, that granted skill and patience, and above all, time enough, some way of embracing both alternatives can always be found. That mere development or adjustment or refinement will somehow turn evil into good without our being called on for a final and total rejection of anything we should like to retain. This belief I take to be And again, English people usually love um, understatement, so when he has strong language, he really means it. This belief I take to be a disastrous error. You cannot take all, all luggage with you on all journeys. 
On one journey, even your on one journey, even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things you have to leave behind. Of course, he's quoting Jesus there. We are not living in a world where all roads are radii of a circle and where where all, if followed long enough, will therefore draw gradually and never finally meet at the center. All roads lead to God. All paths lead to God. He's writing this, is published 1946. I mean, if he could see our world today. Yeah, he's saying, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, there, there are different roads. And all roads won't get you to the same place. That's why all decisions won't get you to the same place. Rather, in a world where every road, after a few miles, forks into two, and each of those into two again, and at each fork you must make a decision. Yeah, there are real decisions we have to make. And you can't just say, whatever. There are real decisions. Uh, skip down the next paragraph. I'm not going to read the whole book to you. Skip down the next paragraph. I do not think that all who choose wrong roads perish, but their rescue consists in being put back on the right road. A sum can be put right, but only by going back till you find the error and working it afresh from that point, never by simply going on. Evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. C.S. Lewis did not like the general use of the word progressive. Because if you're heading in the wrong direction, you're not progressing. Just because it's a new and different direction doesn't mean it's, you're progressing. He says sometimes the most progressive thing you can do is turn around and go back to the beginning, start over. So yeah, sometimes just embracing the new, some people think is progressive. Well, maybe, maybe not. Again, life's not that simple. There are some either-or decisions put in front of us. So he's making the case um, that um, you, decisions are important. What you do in this life, the choices you make are important. Now, um, you can read the rest, I hope you will, more than once. Look at how he ends, because we've already said it, but I want to say it again, then I want to take you to the last paragraph of the book for a second. Look at the last paragraph of the preface. We've already said it once, but bears repeating. I beg readers to remember that this is a fantasy. It has, of course, or I intend it to have a moral, but the transmortal conditions, conditions on another side of mortality, are solely an imaginative supposal. They are not even a guess or a speculation at what what may actually await us. The last thing I wish is to arouse factual curiosity about the details of this world. Uh, member Paul said, I has not seen, ear has not heard, it has not entered the mind of men what God has prepared for those who love him. So yeah, he's saying don't, don't, don't get tied up into... Um, thinking that this, these are factual details about the afterworld. Again, people in our culture don't really know how to read fantasy much. Uh, you should learn how to read fantasy because used to, the, the way we lost the ability to read fantasy is we, we got in the habit of reading everything like we were f reading fact. 
And, you know, that's why some people still read newspapers as if they're reading fact. (laughs) Sometimes you need to realize it's not always fact. So you need to learn how to read fantasy. You know, it's not just the simple fact you're being given. And sometimes, you know, exercise the right-hand side of your brain. Think about metaphor and analogy. Think about what the meaning of the text. Don't just worry about what kind of fruit Adam and Eve were eating. I mean, go a little deeper than what kind of fruit Adam and Eve were eating. So now, just to kind of emphasize that, um, go to the last paragraph of the book. See, see, notice the subtitle is, and you have to turn like to the, the... almost the title page, The Great Divorce, A Dream. There is a subtitle, A Dream. You see at the end of the book, the narrator, who we all do take to be Jack, Jack's on this journey. Notice the last sentence, the last sentence in the book. My book is page 146, the last sentence. This person is having a dream. I awoke in a cold room, hunched on the floor beside a black and empty grate fireplace. The clock striking three and the siren howling overhead. So the guy's been sleeping. What wakes him? Air raid. He's writing this during World War II, I said. So yeah, the guy wakes up. So I just want you to see that to make sure you don't forget this man's having a dream like Scrooge. And he's learning some important things. Uh, I hope it changed. I'm sure it changed his life. Like, I'm sure Scrooge's dream changed his life. But yeah, he wakes up because air raid uh, sirens are blaring because he was writing this during World War II. So that's the preface. So um, remember it's a fantasy or a dream, whichever one of those helps you best. Focus on what you understand. Don't, work, don't get hung on what you don't understand. Um, also, um, keep remember, remind yourself this is about the importance of choices. He wants to affect your life today like the dream did for Scrooge, like the dream evidently did for the, this person having the dream. So let me just kind of get into chapter 1. Chapter 1 and 2... Set the stage, you, you start the journey in chapter 1 and 2. The rest of the book are just these vignettes of who Jack meets or who Jack watches two people meet uh, when, when, they're, when they're in the outskirts of heaven. So it's really simple, not much to it. Uh, they're going to take a journey, and then when they get there, they're go- he's going to watch people encounter each other. Which is why, if you ever see this off Broadway, or I've seen it off Broadway, I've seen it down at the Blumenthal in um, uh, Charlotte. It only you can do this, even though there's there's lots of vignettes. And I gave you a cheat sheet, by the way. Did you see that? There are the twenty characters that you meet. These are just vignettes. Those are the twenty characters that you meet, uh, with a little bit in case you can't quite pick up on what their sin is. If you can't quite pick up on what their baggage is, if you can't quite pick up on what their souvenir of hell is that they want to take with them to heaven, it's listed there for you. Um, But if you watch this done theatrically, they can do it with less than 10 actors. They just have to run off stage and change clothes and come back real fast. 
So you got 10 actors portraying all these people um, because you just are, once you get to the outskirts of heaven, you're just going to, through the eyes of Jack, the narrator, you, you, you're going to see these people meet each other. And uh, they're fascinating. Sometimes it does help to, and I'm not sure if you go, I meant to do this. If you go to YouTube, you might can pull up uh, a recording of one of the plays of the great divorce. Watch this happen. Anyway, let's just look at the first paragraph because it kind of sets the stage. So again, most of what you're going to see after they get there is just dialogue. These people talking to each other. Just keep in mind, spirits are those that are living there. Ghosts are those that are visiting there. And later you'll know why they're called ghosts when they're coming from hell. Um, but anyway, uh, just keep in mind when you're watching the dialogues and you're kind of forgetting who's who talking to each other, uh, the spirits are the people that are heavenly, the ghosts are the people that are hellish. Anyway, so here's the narrator. You know it's the narrator. The first word is I. And this is probably Jack here. Notice what he says here. And, I'm, and this is what catches people. They read this first paragraph, and it, it is what it is. It's a fantasy. So don't, you know, look at it. I seem to be standing in a busy queue. What's a queue? Good. Yeah, when I was younger, growing up in Gastonia, North Carolina, I didn't know that a queue was a line. But in England, a queue is a line. He's writing from England. He says, I seem to be standing in a busy queue by the side of a long, mean street. And mean, he's using the same, he's using that word the same way the King James Bible uses it. When um, St. Paul says, I, I come from no mean city, I come from Tarsus. Uh, Paul is saying, I came from a really sharp city, not a simple, bad, mundane city. But here he says, I seem to be standing in a busy queue by the side of a long, mean, simple, mundane, common street. Evening was just closing in, and it was raining. I had been wandering for hours in similar mean streets, always in the rain, always in twilight. So he's in a strange place. You're going to learn it's the gray town. It's gray because it's always twilight until night comes. We'll talk about that later. Until night comes, it's always twilight. Uh, never, never, you know, sunshiny, never bright daylight, never night. It's always twilight. So he's wandering these depressing streets um, in the rain. Um, and that's important because the houses these people build in, build in hell, that they can build by just imagining them. They, they don't even keep the rain out. But anyway, it's always raining in this place. Time seems to have paused on that dismal moment when only a few shops have lit up and it's not yet dark enough for their windows to look cheering. And just as the evening never advanced to night, so my walking had never brought me to the better parts of the town. However far I went, I found only dingy lodging houses, small tobacconist hoardings from which posters hung in rags like junk shops, windowless warehouses, Good stations without trains, and this is this is meant to be a joke, and all of his Oxford scholar friends got it. And bookshops of the sort that sell the works of Aristotle. We love Plato, by the way, not Aristotle. There's a bust of Plato in my study. There's not a bust of Aristotle. You don't need to understand that unless you just want to get real nerdy. 
But uh, the, the other professors at Oxford would have laughed when he's painting this picture of these bookshops in hell. That only, and they, they're just the kind of bookshops that only sell Aristotle, not Plato or anyway. Uh, you don't need to worry about that. Uh, but they laughed when they read it. I never met anyone. So he's not, no, so he's walking these dark, dingy streets. He's not meeting anybody except this line of people. This line of people. I never met anybody but for the little crowd at the bus stop. The whole town seemed to be empty. I think that was why I attached myself to the queue. Um, kind of reminds me, I took a group one time to Italy. We started out in Padua. Um, my, we were at the big church in Padua up in northern Italy. and um, We went in there and there was this line going around the back of the altar, the back of the altar. I watched my people, they didn't want to miss anything. I watched some of my people get in that line real fast. And I thought, they don't, I'm sure they don't know where that line's going. Uh, so I waited till they turned the corner around behind the altar. That was the line to go see the 1,000-year-old preserved tongue of St. Anthony of Padua. So I'm watching these people. I thought it was kind of funny. They're, they're, my people got in that line because they didn't want to miss anything. They got in that line thinking they were going to see something really... It was a relic of St. Anthony, his tongue. He was a great preacher. It was a relic of St. Anthony. Anyway, so I sort of see that here. He's, he can't, he's finding no people, but he sees a cue, so he just gets in it. Um, now, what you would notice as you keep reading, these people who are in this queue... In the great town, they don't do anything but quarrel and complain. They even fight. At one point, there's going to be guns drawn. When people get mad and leave the line, the others are like, good, we get to move up further. Tells you a little bit about the people that inhabit the great town. Um, You're going to learn later the reason he's not encountering people is when the people go to Greytown, they move further and further and further and further away from each other. Again, telling you something about hellish behavior. They don't want to be around people. If you want to go see, you'll learn in the next chapter. If you want to go see Napoleon, it's like, like a million years of travel. You know, the really evil people hate people and they move further and further and further away. So these people that you're encountering in Greytown, and don't, you know, granted, maybe right now you didn't realize what, where you were at when you were in Greytown, so I'm giving you the cliff notes. You're in the outskirts of hell. So these people that are in the line are just complaining and grouching, and, and you know, you, you're hearing them say stuff like, I've got my rights. You can't get in front of me. Um, you, you're hearing these people say all these things in the line in Greytown. So if you need a, a picture of what hellish behavior is like, and if you, you know, C.S. Lewis one time wrote, he said, he said, I, he said, I used to think there were two kinds of people in the world, happy and not happy, but now I think there are two kinds of people in the world, those who want to be happy and those who do not. Um, some of these people, people, we choose our behavior sometimes. If you know how to do nothing but quarrel and complain, and be bitter and fight for your rights and not like anybody is hellish behavior. 
It fits in, it fits in Greytown. It fits in Greytown. So yeah, these people are, are in the line. You know, they're, they're not being pleasant to each other. They're not helping each other. So, um, you know, C.S. Lewis hopes that as you're reading this and you find yourself, by, by page two you're thinking, this is not where I want to live. These are not the kind of people I want to hang out with. Um, but we all know people like this. Sometimes we're like this. Anyway, so what happens then on page three, second full page of chapter one, this, this bus appears. And it is a bus. It is a flying bus. It just means it's a flying bus. Sometimes a hat just means a hat. Sometimes a flying bus is just a flying bus. It's a flying bus because they're getting ready to take a trip. You know, I'm not sure they all even know where they're going, but you know, they don't want to miss out anything. They want whatever their rights are giving to them, and they don't want anybody to get ahead of them, so they're all getting this line, and this bus shows up. Look at that paragraph that starts. It was a wonderful vehicle, blazing with golden light, heraldically colored, you know, like royalty, like you're in a castle. The driver himself seemed full of light. Now, already... People are like, is this Jesus? Is it an angel? Is it, who knows? Is it a driver that's full of light? Um, probably not Jesus. Jesus has got other things he's taking care of. But this is probably an angelic celestial driver who's driving this bus that's taking these people on their vacation from, from the great town to the outskirts of heaven. The driver himself seems full of light, and he used only one hand to drive with. You know, it's not hard for him to do it. The other, he waved before his face as if to fan away the greasy steam of the rain. Yeah, you don't want Greytown. You really don't. A growl went up from the queue as he came in sight. So again, the bus is arriving. They're still not happy. They only know how to complain and quarrel. That's, that's all they know how to do. Looks as if he had a good time of it, huh? Bloody pleased with himself, I bet. My dear, why can't he behave naturally? Thinks himself too good to look at us. Who does he imagine he is? All that gilding and purple, I call it a wicked waste. Why don't they spend some of the money on their house property down here? God, you know, one of the angels later, one of the spirits later, when somebody says God on the other side, the um, person's going to say, God is a noun up here. It's not an exclamation, it's a noun. But down there is an exclamation, God, I'd like, him, I'd like to give him one, of, one in the old ear hole. I could see nothing in the countenance of the driver to justify all this, unless it were that he had the look of authority and it seemed intent on carrying out his job. My fellow passengers fought like hens to get on board the bus, though there was plenty of room for all of us. So they get on the bus... And they start, they start flying. That, then, then look at the last paragraph of this. Again, these chapters are short. Uh, before you get to the last paragraph, just, hello, we've left the ground. It was true. Several hundred feet below us, already half hidden in the rain and mist, the wet roofs of the town appeared spreading without a break as far as the eye could reach. So there they go. These interesting people from Greytown are on this bus with our narrator, and um, they're going somewhere else. 
So um, next week we'll look at chapter, what did I tell you, chapter 1 and 2 probably. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll look at chapter 1 and maybe move on a little bit. Uh, you know, the chapters are so short. I know some of you have already read the book. Some of you may be rereading the second time. In other words, don't, be, don't feel guilty if you read ahead. We'll look a little more at chapter 1 and chapter 2 probably next week. Um, because then you just then you just start with the vignettes. Um, any closing question or, or remarks or comments? Start paying attention to your hellish behavior, <laughs> and and understand you can't take it with you there. And if you like it too much, that's problematic. That's problematic. Well, keep reading. Thanks for the journey. Hang in there. It's, it's worth the payoff. Once you get there, go in peace. See you all later.